Hello and welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Overready. This is Stephen Robles and we have an incredible interview. We actually did a webinar style Zoom call this week with Dr. Neil Shenby. You've heard him on the Free Mind Podcast before and he specializes in critical theory, critical race theory. We talk about all the current events, what to look out for when trying to identify critical race theory and a lot more. Before we jump into the interview, we want to remind you about Impact 360. They're a longtime sponsor and we love everything they do. Their online courses about truth, worldview, and defending the resurrection are incredible ways to get started, especially if you have a high school or college age student. And don't forget about their gap year program, where if you have a graduating high school senior, you can send them to the Impact 360 Institute and they can get trained with a biblical foundation and Christian apologetics so that they're ready to encounter and engage with culture once they head off to college. You can get $25 off those online courses with the promo code FREEMIND. And if you apply your student for the Gap Year program, use the promo code FREEMIND, and you can have your application fee waived. So check them out at impact360.org and use the promo code FREEMIND. We also encourage you to watch this presentation on our YouTube channel. There's a link in show notes, or you can go to freemind.fm and click on YouTube. Or just search YouTube for Free Mind Podcast because Dr. Neil Shenvey has many slides that he references during the presentation. So go ahead, subscribe to our YouTube channel there and check out the entire presentation. Now here's our interview with Dr. Neil Shenvey. Well, for for those of you who are just coming in, I'm Seth and this is my wife, Nerva. And uh, we are artists and worship leaders by trade. Um, But we started this podcast called the Free Mind Podcast a year, over a year ago now. But we just felt so, um, we felt a sense of urgency. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot obviously going on in this nation right now. And uh, we're living through some crazy times. And, you know, what I didn't want this to feel like was a reactionary thing. Um, because there's a lot of that going on on all sides right now where people are just, they're coming into the conversation late and, and it's not always helpful. And I thought something Neil said the other day that because of really one of the negatives in, in current church culture in, the, in recent history has been a stream of not really preparing and equipping people, especially intellectually. Mm. And I think we're, we're, we are seeing the fruits of that now. And so if you try to come into a conversation like this and just learn a couple little nuggets to kind of label people and, and cancel them and, and slap away conversation, it's not going to go well. And that's not the way we want to do it. Um, but just just so you know a little bit about our background and what we're trying to do with this, why we're addressing this, um, so you don't feel like, man, this is just one more um, quick, knee-jerk, conservative Christian reaction to what's going on. Nerva and I have been um, blessed to do reconciliation ministry for many years um, in the church. And so we put out a song called Brother. Uh, it was around 2015, 2016, when a lot of the police shootings were going on, um, when the Black Lives Matter movement started. So we put out, we, we covered a song called Brother. And at the time, the song really, it, it kind of, it, it carry, I think it carries and carried biblical truth. But it, it was easily one of those songs that got swept into the categorization of the social justice movement that was really taking root in our culture. And so I even started really 
connecting with some of those thinkers. And so Nerva and I, she's from South side of Chicago, like right in the heart of the area that is sometimes called Chirac, you know, all, all the shootings that happened a couple weekends ago, very, very close to that area. And so, you know, she, she understands that world. We went to Chicago to hear Cornell West speak in person and it was really moving to me. And if you saw him on Fox news this week, uh, he doesn't normally <laughs> look that quite that crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is live speaking. Uh, it was actually very moving to me. And it, and it really, I was like, man, this is awesome. So I, we went and did a concert at a church for free in Charlotte on the back end of some riots that had taken place there. And um, met a pastor there. He started passing me some of this literature. And one of the books was Ta-Nehisi Coates. And I think it's a book called Between the World and Me. And so I read that book. And I was really moved, again, same way I was moved by, by Dr. Cornell West. I was moved by Ta-Nehisi Coates. And I, and I began to look at these concepts, and I was like, man, this is, this is horrible. we got to do something about it. Now, in reading Coates' book, I noticed that there was something off. I, and, and I had studied a little bit of, of epistemology, the theory of knowledge. And I noticed he was doing kind of a trick in that area that I thought was unhelpful and in really dangerous, but I thought, well, most of it's probably fine. Um, just that little area. So the fast forward a little bit, the more I got into this stuff, um, I was seeing there was, a, there was some truths in it that I hadn't been aware of before. And I was kind of getting pulled in this direction. And um, thankfully, I feel like in God's providence, he, he began to um, open up some some doors to ministries and, and other books that were kind of challenging some of these ideas that I hadn't looked at in the past that, that I feel like rescued me from going down a bad path. And um, I think we have been trying to do that with this podcast because we understand I, I've been using this analogy lately. So going down a river and, you know, just imagining it's, it's a, you're on this boat and you want to move forward, right? It's, it's, moving this way, but you have rocks on both sides of the bank. And if this boat gets too far on either side, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hit these rocks and break down. And you're going to be stuck. And you're not going to make progress. So I think most of us admit we want to make progress in the area of biblical unity. Most of us understand the history in this nation has not as much of a blessing as this nation is. It's not been fair to many people, groups at time, and that that past still affects the present. But here's, here's what's going on. You got on the one side over here is kind of like, oh, we don't even want to talk about race. We don't want to discuss that stuff. I don't care what your experience is. It's not even true. I don't want to hear you. And I think because the church has failed to address race from a biblical perspective in a full-blooded, open, conversational way, we are now bearing the unfortunate fruits of that. But on the other side, I think, is 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 this kind of ideas that are coming through critical theory and critical race theory. And I feel like if, if you were to think of a current that's pulling us toward one side, I think it's strongly pulling us toward that side. The cultural current is toward critical theories, toward critical race theory. And so if you're in that boat, one of the first things you need to do is paddle hard in the other direction to stay in the middle. And um, I, that's why, you know, it might seem insensitive to, to, jump into this topic of race in the church by first addressing what I see is the rocks over here 
But the reason is, is because one of, one of the things I'm seeing in the church's response, it's a, it's a rapid current right now. And it's, and it's coming, every, all the book recommendations I'm seeing, the interviews going on. I think we have to address this framework first. If we're going to map out a way forward, we first have to address what I think is a pill that has some good stuff in it, but it has such a potent uh, amount of poison that if you take it, it's going to kill um, so many, it's just, it's just going to, it's going to kill the victim. It's, it's not going to help them. And so today what we want to do is lay out what is the framework that some of these ideas are coming from? It's going to require, I think, a bit of, um, a bit of concentration for some of us who haven't um, wrestled through this issue already. But that's why we're, we're planning on bringing in speakers that have been wrestling with this stuff. They've been engaged in this dialogue for a long time. So this week is Dr. Neil Shinvey. Next week, we're going to have uh, Sammy Say in to talk about um, uh, systematic systemic racism, myth or reality, what do we do with it? Um, the week after that, we're going to be talking about the Black Lives Matter movement with Ryan Baumberger. Should we partner with it? How should we see it? Uh, and then after that, we're going to begin to map out a way forward in this dialogue. Um, but before we hop in with Neil, did you have anything you wanted to add? Yeah, our heart uh, today is to just encourage and to um, impart knowledge. The Bible says we my people perish because of the lack of knowledge. Lots of perishing going on today. And I just wanted to remind you that we, we have an adversary, Satan, who has declared war on the creation of God and his sons and daughters. So my name is Dr. Neil Shenvey, and I am here to talk to you about social justice, critical theory, and Christianity. Um, are they compatible? This is a talk I've given before at Southeastern, New Orleans, uh, all over the place. You may have seen it before. Uh, if you have, you know, uh, just take it all in again. It's a, it's a lot of dense material. I hope it will be helpful to you. Um, I tried to bring it down to an accessible level. But I also tried to retain a lot of depth. I don't want to give you just a simplified version of critical theory or contemporary critical theory or caricature. I want to give you a very sort of neutral and objective picture. So to do that, I'm going to just outline these ideas without passing judgment on them, without criticizing them. The first thing I'll do is talking about what they are and then even talking about what they get right, right? All truth is God's truth. And so I don't want to give the impression that these ideas are completely bankrupt and get nothing right because actually it's the opposite. The reason they're so attractive is that they get a lot of or a few things right and that's the hook that they get to, to, to get people to accept them. And only when you work out their implications that really show that you um, that they're incompatible fundamentally with Christianity. But to begin with, let me just say that I am not here. Let me maximize my screen first. Um, I, I when I give talks like this one, people assume that I'm here to convince you to vote a certain way. I'm here to promote a certain brand of politics. Uh, I want to assure you that is not the case. Uh, I am not here to talk about how social justice is some kind of Marxist globalist conspiracy and that it's, it stands against the American way and apple pie and baseball. That, that's not why I'm here. My, my concerns about critical theory are not political. They're theological in nature. So let me begin with four cultural artifacts, four things that you might recognize from our culture, or at least these, these ideas that you see out there pretty, pretty frequently. So to begin with, 
Here's a Twitter exchange between Cher and Rosie O'Donnell, two social media people with, with large followings, entertainers. And so in 2018, Cher began by tweeting Biden Beto 2020. So she wanted to see Beto, uh, Beto work and Joe Biden in the presidential ticket. Rosie responds, say no to Joe. Uh, reader says, what's wrong with Joe Biden? And Rosie responds, currently no more old white men. Second, this, this statement was from an open letter released in the wake of the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, which left about 50 people dead after a gunman opened fire and killed about 50 people at a gay nightclub. Now, this, this actually is from, I'll just say it, this is from Black Lives Matter. It's an open letter that they wrote. And in that letter, they wrote this, the enemy is now and has always been the four threats of white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, and militarism. These forces and not Islam create terrorism. These forces and not queerness create homophobia. And that's an, that's an odd response to a, an Islamic terrorist shooting up a gay nightclub, but that's what they said. Now, this is a peer-reviewed paper in feminist glaciology. That's the study of glaciers. The authors are attempting to build a sort of new framework for understanding glaciers. That's the, the large blocks of ice covering the poles that incorporates gender. And they say in their abstract, this feminist glaciology framework is going to lead to more just and equitable science and human ice interactions. Now you read that and you say, I don't see the connection between glaciers and gender. That, and you might not. But I think we're beginning to see something familiar. We've kind of seen these sentiments about race and class and gender echoed maybe in the media, on social media, in the news, on movies, and the radio. And here's just the last one. This is more recent. Um, today I went to amazon.com and audible.com and looked at Kindle and the number one best-selling book on all those platforms is Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility. The number two book bestseller on Amazon and on Audible is Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. These books are just taking off. I think they're actually sold out of White Fragility uh, recently. And so for the last, and actually White Fragility has been on the New York Times bestseller list for, I guess, almost two years since the book was published. So these are incredibly popular books. We're, we're talking about race, especially in the last week or two in the, in the, in the aftermath of the horrific Ahmaud Arbery and, and George Floyd death, the shootings and the killings. And so we are clearly in the midst of something that's, that's convulsing our culture. I want to explore what that is. Now, we might dismiss all this talk about race, class, gender, these weird ideas about feminist glaciology and no more old white men for president. We might just interpret that as these random, incoherent, bizarre expressions of the 21st century zeitgeist, this cancel culture. We don't know what it is. It's just bizarre and incoherent and random. It'll, it'll pass. It'll go away. Now, that's an understandable reaction, but I want to show tonight that that is incorrect. These are not just random ideas. These are actually part of a coherent framework that I would argue is a worldview, a way of viewing all of reality. It fits together. And once you understand where these ideas are coming from, they begin to make sense, begin to make sense. So it's my goal tonight is to give you an idea about where these ideas are coming from. And once you understand this framework, this worldview, I think you're going you're gonna to walk away saying something that all of a lot of people have said after viewing this talk, they come away saying, 
once you see it, you can't unsee it. Once you understand these ideas, things begin to make much more sense. Okay, but let's begin with this question, why should we care? So here's an outline that I'll begin with asking, why should we care about these ideas? Was it really a big deal? Second, what is critical theory? Where are these ideas coming from? I'll argue they're coming from a discipline known as critical theory and a particular manifestation of that discipline, which I'll call contemporary critical theory. Uh, I'll talk about some conflicts between these ideas and Christianity. I'll talk about some slogans you're likely to hear both in our culture and within the church itself that sound really good, but if you follow them logically to their, to their logical conclusions, you'll realize these slogans are incompatible with Christianity. Now, I'm going to skip the last two sections and actually uh, move instead to a Q&A time. So normally I talk about examples of critical theory within the church. It's not just out there in the culture, it's also within the conservative evangelical church. But I'll skip that section, and I'll skip a, a large section at the end where I talk about racism today. Uh, I give examples both from our histori history, uh, slavery, lynching, Jim Crow, and present-day examples like hiring discrimination, uh, opposition to interracial marriage within the church. It exists today, believe it or not, in, in significant numbers. But I'm going to skip that because I'm hoping that uh, you'll ask questions that we talk about uh, in the chat, and, and, and Stephen and Zeth and Nerva will then ask me questions about race and racism in particular, rather than going through the section of the talks. Um, but it's all online if you want to look at it. Uh, but I'll, I won't address that explicitly in the slides tonight. So let's begin by asking this question, what, uh, sorry, why should we care about critical theory? Well, you know, five years ago, I didn't care about critical theory. I couldn't have cared less. You know, I have been interested in apologetics for, I don't know, 15 years, uh, since early after becoming a Christian. But I was, I'm a scientist, and so I was concerned mainly with showing intellectuals and my colleagues in academia why Christianity was both reasonable and true. So I studied things like, how do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? How do we know that the gospel is even true? So I began to explore those questions. And I was not very politically motivated. I still am not today. I, I don't, I'm not very interested in politics. I'm, I'm a scientist, not a humanities person. I'm not interested in culture, really. I don't have a TV, I have a TV but we watch, you know, kids shows on Netflix. We don't really watch, I don't watch the news. I read a lot of books. But the point is, I was not concerned with what's called cultural apologetics, trying to reach the culture. That was not my field. But around five years ago, I began noticing this strange drift, both in our culture and in people that I knew personally and in public Christian figures. They began with, by, with being interested in social justice, which I assumed just meant applying biblical principles to our politics, trying to apply what the Bible says about our beliefs and work to create just laws. And I thought, well, everybody is for that kind of social justice. But then these same people would often drift theologically into beliefs that were more and more heterodox. And I could not figure it out. How do you go from saying I care about sexism and racism, and I'd say, yeah, amen, we should end those things, to saying things like, how do I know that Jesus is the only path to God? And I was like, how do you connect the dots? How do you go from point A to point B? It made no sense to me until I read this book. It's an anthology called Race, Class, and Gender. It's 500 pages. It touches on topics as diverse as critical race theory, critical pedagogy, Marxism, a queer theory. And when I finished this anthology, I put it down and I said, I understand now. What I'm seeing is not people who are simply adopting a few new beliefs about politics, 
they're adopting a new worldview. And that is gradually eroding their Christian worldview. And that's why I'm concerned today. I, I see more and more Christians who are adopting these ideas unwittingly, unconsciously, and they're beginning to work their way through their theology and leading them to adopt increasingly bad and dangerous religious ideas. So that's why I'm concerned. So let's talk about where these ideas come from. What are they and where do they come from? And to do that, we need a little bit of historical background. So academics pretty much agree that critical theory, that critical tradition begins with Karl Marx, not with his writings about economics or those ideas, but primarily with his ideas about how power works to reproduce inequalities and injustice within our culture. Those are the ideas that were uh, picked up and borrowed by critical theorists or developed by critical theorists. And the term itself did not come from Marx. Critical theory, the term comes from something called the Frankfurt School. These were a group of sociologists and philosophers working in Germany and later in the U.S., people like uh, Marcuse, Benjamin, Horkheimer, Adorno, and they wanted to apply Marx's ideas not just to economics, but to culture and mass media. So they wanted to extend Marx's analysis more broadly than just economics. But that was 90 years ago. That, that, that was when critical theory was developed, 80 or 90 years ago. And since then, the discipline of critical theory has expanded tremendously to encompass entire fields. So post-colonialism, critical pedagogy, postmodernism, feminism, black feminism, queer theory, critical race theory, these are all manifestations of critical theory construed broadly, or critical social theories, they're sometimes called. So here's a, here's, here's a really funny illustration. This is a diagram from a book called Introducing Critical Theory by Simon Van Loon. They tried to construct a genealogy or a taxonomy or a family tree of critical theory. So you look at this figure here, you see Karl Marx circled there in, in red. And below him, you see in one little box there, you see the Frankfurt School, Adorno, Marcuse, Benjamin. But you see other people in those, that are downstream of Karl Marx, people like Antonio Gramsci. You have all of second wave feminism, all of it in one single box here. You have all of black feminism. You have all of postmodernism. You have all of postcolonialism. You see people like Derrida and Foucault on the right there. So this is it's about two dozen boxes that are all downstream of Karl Marx and the Frankfurt School. So this shows you really how broad the critical tradition actually is. It's tremendously broad and very diverse. So here's how I think of it. When people say critical theory, they occasionally mean the Frankfurt School. So that's when critical theory is used very narrowly, it refers to this small group of sociologists and philosophers uh, working in Germany in the 1930s and their descendants, of their, 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 uh, their progenitors later on. And when critical theory is used in this narrow sense, it's often capitalized, capital C, capital T. That's the Frankfurt School. But then when you use critical theory broadly, or critical social theories broadly, can refer to entire academic disciplines like queer theory, neo-Marxism, gender studies, and critical race theory. So critical race theory would be a subset of critical theory understood broadly. You say, okay, this is way too academic. This, okay, I'm totally lost now. What are we talking about again? Okay, here's a better way to think about critical theory, because this is, people debate about, well, what is critical theory really? What's the essence of it? And people argue about it for, for a long time. Here's a better approach. 
look at these terms. Intersectionality, white privilege, white fragility, colorblind racism, internalized oppression, lived experience, heteronormativity, gender performativity, epistemic injustice, cis-heteropatriarchy, compulsory heterosexuality and whiteness. Now, you've probably heard at least some of those terms before. If you've existed on a college campus for the last six months, you've heard those terms. If you, if you have a social media account, you've heard those terms. If you've followed the Twitter accounts of sitting senators, you've heard those terms. Now, question, where do those terms come from? Well, at, at a minimum, they come from the set of scholars who either coined or popularized those terms. People like Kimberly Crenshaw, Peggy McIntosh, Robin DiAngelo, Eduardo Benia Silva, Patricia Collins. So these scholars either defined or popularized those terms. Okay, well, who, who, are, who are those scholars? I don't know them either. And, and what do we call the ideology that, what are they all doing? I mean, some of those people are legal scholars, some are sociologists, some of those are feminists. But what are they all doing? What's the name we would give to this ideology they're promoting? Well, there are a lot of names. People will call this ideology cultural Marxism. You've probably heard that term before. They'll call it identity politics. They'll call it critical race theory. It's not quite right. It goes well beyond race. They'll call it intersectionality. The, uh, uh, James Lindsay, Helen Pluckrose, and Peter Bogosian coined the humorous term grievance studies to refer to these ideas. But I, use, I try to use a sort of neutral term, contemporary critical theory, because undoubtedly these scholars are writing in the critical tradition. They will explicitly rely on and appeal to these critical scholars, and they'll say they're doing critical theory. And this is a manifestation of critical theory that is the most relevant to our contemporary culture. You know, no one on campus today is quoting Horkheimer or Marcuse or Benjamin. They're quoting D'Angelo. They're quoting Crenshaw, right? They're reading books like White Fragility. So I'm going to use the term contemporary critical theory, or critical theory for short, to refer to these ideas. But you can call it cultural Marxism if you want to. You can call it intersectionality because the label is less important than the ideas themselves. Okay, so we're dealing with these scholars and the ideas they're promoting. We're going to call that contemporary critical theory. Now, what are the ideas? Because the main thing is not what we call it. The main question is, what are the ideas that are being promoted? And are they compatible with Christianity? So I'm going to list four major ideas. The social binary, oppression through ideology, lived experience, and social justice. So what are these four ideas? And then are they, later we'll ask, are they compatible with Christianity? So number one. What is a social binary? The social binary holds that society is divided into oppressed groups and oppressor groups. But here's a quote from Sensoy and D'Angelo. For every social group, there's an opposite group. The primary groups that we name here are race, class, gender, sexuality, ability, status, exceptionality, religion, and nationality. So, and they list the oppressions associated with those various identity markers, sexism, racism, classism, ableism, and heterosexism are forms of oppression by which the dominant group oppresses the minoritized group, not the minority group, the minoritized group. We'll get to that in a second. Okay. Uh, they say a picture's worth a thousand words. So here's a picture from their book. I think this is so helpful here. People will say, well, you... This is, you're, all make, you're making this stuff up. This sounds like a conservative right-wing Fox News, you know, Breitbart, you know, report. Are they really teaching this stuff? Well, here's a figure from their book. 
in this figure, they list various oppressions, racism, classism, sexism, heterosexism, religious oppression, ableism, nationalism, colonialism. They list the minoritized group, people of color, the poor, women, gays, Muslim, Buddhists, and Jews. They list the dominant agent oppressor groups, whites, the owning class, cis men, heterosexuals, Christians, the able-bodied, etc. So you're dividing a society into oppressor groups and the oppressed groups along lines of race, class, gender, etc. Here's another figure. This one is actually called the Matrix of Oppression. It's from Adam's Teaching for Diversity and Social Justice, Appendix C. So again, you see different forms, different isms, racism, sexism, transgender oppression, heterosexism, and so forth. You see different privileged groups, whites, men, uh, gender-conforming people, heterosexuals, the rich, Protestants, and different oppressed groups, Asians, blacks, women, transgender people, uh, lesbians, working class, Jews, Muslims, and Hindus. Um, so this is the idea of the social binary. Now, the idea of intersectionality actually complicates the social binary. So what, what intersectionality says narrowly is that you can't understand someone's identity along a, a single axis alone. So for example, I am not simply a man. I'm not simply half Indian. I am not simply heterosexual. But my identity is formed by all of those features interacting together to, place, to, to form a certain social location. So where I am in society is determined by the intersection of multiple identities. Now, where do you see that in practice? Well, here's a sign that was shown at the, the Women's March in 2017 that was created to protest the election of Donald Trump and to unite people around women's issues. But at that event, we see a woman here holding up a sign that says, don't forget, white women voted for Trump. And here's another sign from the Women's March that says, feminism without intersectionality is just white supremacy. Now, what, is that, what do those signs mean? What they're saying is that we can't assume that women of color and white women will share the same priorities and values and agendas because women of color experience a unique form of oppression that white women do not experience. So they are doubly oppressed, whereas white women are only singly oppressed. We can't assume that we have to take into account intersectionality in order to fully understand where women of color are coming from. Now, that idea does not eliminate the social binary or reverse it, but it complicates it. And so, again, one other application would be that you can be both oppressed and an oppressor at the same time along different categories. So, for example, a black man would be oppressed with respect to his race as a, as a black person, but would be privileged with respect to his gender because he's a man. So you can be both oppressed and an oppressor at the same time. Or like a white woman would be oppressed with respect to her gender, but would be privileged with respect to her race. Okay, second. Oppression through ideology. So critical theorists, contemporary critical theorists, believe that oppression occurs not only through acts of cruelty and violence and coercion, but through something called hegemonic power. What in the world is hegemonic power? Well, Sensoy and D'Angelo explain. They say hegemony refers to the control of the ideology of society. The dominant group maintains power by imposing their ideology on everyone else. And so privilege is defined as systemically conferred dominance, where the beliefs and values of the dominant group, that's their hegemony, are made normal and universal. 
right? So they're saying that certain groups have power. They're the ruling class, whether it's whites or men or heterosexuals or the rich. And they impose their rich white male heterosexual values on all of culture. And we all accept those values as neutral and objective and rational and common sense. But really, those values and norms and expectations reinforce and justify white male dominance, even though they're, they're claimed to be objective. So here's an example. This is actually a classic essay by Iris Young. In her, it's her essay, Five Faces of Oppression. And she talks about how we used to understand oppression as referring to cruelty, injustice, and violence and coercion. But, we've but critical theorists have adopted a new definition. She writes, in its new usage, oppression designates the disadvantage and injustice some people suffer not because a tyrannical power coerces them, not because of that. Instead, they're oppressed because of the everyday practices of a well-intentioned liberal society. You understand? So oppression, she writes, is structural. It's embedded in unquestioned norms habits, and symbols, right? So oppression is not just about, you know, people being enslaved or people stealing from other people or people killing other people. Oppression is encoded in the, the, the air we breathe, the ideas that are everywhere in our culture, the images, habits, symbols, practices, values. Those all are ways that the ruling class imposes values that, that benefit them. They impose the values on everybody else, and that is oppression. And I'll, I'll skip the quotes from Richard Delgado, a famous critical race theorist, Odor Bonilla Silva, a sociologist. They say the same thing, that ideology is a, is a way in which oppression is manifested in our culture. And it's often very hidden and insidious. We don't notice that kind of oppression. We just take it for granted. It's, it's, it's normal, right? We don't recognize that it actually is oppression because it just seems like common sense. Now, that explains, if you understand that oppression is occurring almost primarily through ideology, through hegemonic power, you'll understand why old white men are the canonical oppressor group, despite the fact that they make up only about 15% of the U.S. population. So technically, old white men are a minority group, but they're not minoritized because they have hegemonic power. So what determines your minoritized status is not how, what your numbers are, but how much hegemonic power your group has. That's why, again, old white men are the canonical, standard, reviled oppressor group. Okay, premise number three is lived experience. What does that mean? According to contemporary critical theorists, the lived experience of oppressed groups gives them privileged access to truths about their oppression. So listen to philosopher Jose Medina, quoting Charles Mills. He writes this, hegemonic or dominant or oppressor groups have experiences that foster illusory perceptions about society's functioning. So they're blinded. They're, 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 what they think is reality is actually illusion. So oppressors have illusory perceptions of reality. On the other hand, subordinate groups, oppressed groups, tend to have experiences that at least potentially give rise to more adequate conceptualizations. Again, a lot of academic words there. But what he's saying, uh, let me go another more clear statement. This is from Charles Lawrence. He's speaking on behalf of oppressed people here. So he's a critical pedagogy professor. He's, he writes this. We, oppressed people, must learn to privilege our own perspectives and those of other outsiders. 
We must learn to trust our own senses, feelings, and experiences and to give them authority even or especially in the face of dominant accounts of social reality that claim universality. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that dominant groups claim that they have objective evidence and reason and arguments and universal norms and standards. But we have to realize that our lived experience as oppressed people gives us unique authority to challenge those supposedly universal and objective claims. They claim these ideas are objective, but really they're simply used to justify their own power and privilege. So reject those supposedly objective and universal norms and values and truths and privilege your own lived experience as an oppressed person. This is my favorite quote of all. Um, this is from the introduction of Anderson and Collins' anthology, Race, Class, and Gender. They write, the idea that objectivity is best reached only through rational thought is a specifically Western and masculine way of thinking, one that we will challenge throughout this book. And they challenge that idea that objectivity is, the, is best reached through rational thought. They challenge that idea by appealing to people's lived experiences, their stories. They want to say, how do, these, how do the actual experiences of people at the margins challenge these dominant accounts of reality? And we should give those other voices weight and let them challenge this hegemonic discourse imposed on us by the ruling class. Okay, here's a picture. Again, a lot of that was very abstract and high level. Let me try to make a good illustration here. Here's the way that critical, contemporary critical theorists view knowledge or epistemology. How do we know the truth? If you are part of a privileged oppressor group, then you are blinded by that privilege. You have both conscious and subconscious reasons to deny that you live in an unjust society, that you, to deny that you actually benefit from systems of oppression. So because of those conscious and unconscious reasons, you are blind to reality as it actually is. However, oppressed groups have the same problem because they're born into the same society. They are told the same lies. They buy into the same narrative that is illusory, but it's still given to us by the dominant group, the ruling classes. So they absorb these false ideas, and so they actually normally have internalized oppression. They have adopted these false narratives that were imposed upon them by the ruling class, so they actually begin also, they're also blinded. However, through their lived experience as oppressed people, they can achieve what's called a liberatory consciousness, where the blinders come off and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not going to buy your false narrative anymore. I'm, I realize now that what I was told was objective and neutral and common sense and universal was actually a particular claim meant to enshrine the values of this oppressor class, whether it's men or heterosexuals or whites or the rich. And so they, get, they achieve what's called a liberatory consciousness. And colloquially, that means they get woke. They wake up to the reality of their oppression, and now they can see through these dominant narratives. Okay, that's the sort of that's what's going on, at least according to critical theorists. Finally, social justice. Now, social justice is really the principal concern of critical theory, and it has been since its inception. That Frankfurt School was concerned with the emancipation and the liberation of people from various forms of oppression and injustice and domination. And that concern is echoed today by contemporary critical theorists. So um, 
the, so social justice and the achievement of social justice is kind of the principal or even the fundamental moral duty that we have according to these contemporary critical theorists. So, but how do critical theorists define the term social justice? And it can be used in a lot of different ways. How do they define it? So Mary McClintock in her essay, How to Interrupt Oppressive Behavior, writes this. She defines social justice as the elimination of all forms of social oppression. It can take many forms, she writes. It can be injustice based on a person's gender, race, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, physical or mental ability, or economic class. So critical theorists would define social justice as overturning that system of oppression that relegates some people to oppressor status and other people to oppressed status. They want to dismantle those oppressive structures, and that will achieve for them social justice in which power is shared between all of these various identity groups. Uh, Here is feminist Suzanne Farr. Um, She writes this. This is is really funny, too, in a second. Let's leave with a quote. These political times, these political times, call for renewed dialogue about and commitment to the politics of liberation. Liberation requires a struggle against discrimination based on race, class, gender, sexual identity, ableism, and age. Now, these political times, when is she writing that? She is writing that in 1995, at the height of the Clinton presidency. It's safe to say that these sentiments have been amplified just a little by President Trump's election. But even then, it was still the major theme of their scholarship, social justice. I'll skip Collins, I'll skip Bell Hooks, but they're saying the same thing, that social justice is, as Bell Hooks writes, she says, that is, the, that is the, the, the goal of overturning the existing white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchal system while simultaneously working to undermine and overthrow the system. So that, that to her means social justice, is overthrowing and overturning that white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchal system. And now what's an example of social justice, you know, superseding all other moral concerns? And this is actually really interesting. This, is a, this, this talk I gave, I started giving this talk, you know, two, or two years ago, and even then I was using Antifa as an example of a group for which the, 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 uh, the working for social justice trumped all other moral concerns. And, and we see that very clearly today with all these riots going on. And, but the example I gave, uh, you know, years ago was that in 2017 there was a, a Trump rally and Antifa protested that rally. And during the rally, a member of Antifa hit a Trump supporter in the head with a bike lock. And the Trump supporter wasn't doing anything violent. He was just sitting there talking, but, uh, but he was still assaulted. The, the amazing thing is that the, the man who committed the assault taught ethics at a local university. So we see here that moral commands like thou shalt seek social justice uh, supersede even sort of basic imperatives like thou shalt not hit people with bike locks. So that, that's really the primary, even maybe the only goal of critical theory or contemporary critical theory is seeking social justice. They won't talk very much about other virtues like honesty, compassion, forgiveness, mercy, even generosity. They talk about generosity in terms of structures and systems, not in terms of individual acts of giving and kindness. So I'm not saying they don't do that personally, but their focus as academics is to talk about structures and systems and to work to overturn unjust institutions. Okay. 
So I hope I've shown you that understanding these ideas can really explain quite a bit in our contemporary culture. You know, signs you see, movements you see, uh, ideas that are out there on social media and even in academic journals, they really help, they really explain well if you understand a little bit about these, uh, these ideas that are underlying contemporary critical theory. Uh, before I go on to criticism, let me talk about some strengths. First of all, Critical theorists are right to identify oppression as gravely immoral. The Bible is full of this, right? From Genesis to Revelation, God says oppression is wicked, and he commands his people, his followers, to seek justice and to work on behalf of the vulnerable. Now, there's a big caveat here. What contemporary critical theorists call oppression may not be oppression at all in a biblical sense. So be careful with that term. But nevertheless, when people in power are using their power to abuse vulnerable people, Christians should absolutely stand up for the rights of the vulnerable. Second, critical theorists focus on structures and systems, and that's not always wrong. For example, it would be wrong to analyze something like chattel slavery in the U.S. or apartheid in South Africa or the Holocaust in Germany purely in terms of individual acts of sin. It's not that you know, 5 million German people decided to kill 9 million Jews and, and gypsies and other people. They didn't, that's not what happened. Instead, you had an entire society built on laws and values and norms, which actually valorized the killing and marginalization of these groups. So we can't, we, as Christians, we should recognize that sin is individual. Yes, sin is found in our, in our wicked human hearts and our rebellion against God, and we're individually morally accountable. And yet, sin can be codified into law. It can be encouraged by law, and the law will always shape our moral intuition. And we see this in abortion, right? We routinely talk about systems when it comes to abortion. Do we want to change individual human hearts? Yes. Do we also want to work to overturn unjust laws? Yes. We, can, we want to do both, and we can do both. And so we shouldn't ignore the idea that systems can be infected by human sin. And finally, hegemonic power is a real thing. It does actually exist. And a simple example that will resonate with conservatives is the idea of beauty, systems of beauty and sexuality. Why is it so hard for Christian parents to teach our children that a woman's worth is not solely determined by her external appearance? Why is it so hard? The answer is because they're bombarded on a daily, hourly basis by messages telling them exactly the opposite from every direction, whether it's movies or music or magazines or the radio. They're bombarded with these images and messages that connect beauty to external appearance alone. That is hegemonic power in action. That is the hegemonic power wielded by Hollywood and Madison Avenue. So, and we, we immediately write, like, oh, yeah, of course. There are certain norms and values that are actually very wrong, but they're insidious. They can sneak into our thinking without us even noticing it. So we constantly have to reexamine our values and our norms and say, are these truly biblical or am I simply imbibing them from the surrounding culture? That is the question of recognizing hegemonic power. And there's more I could go into uh, with respect to say, race, for example. A critical race theory gets certain things right. Like they believe that race is a social construct, and that is correct. The way that we understand race today in America is not based on biology. It's actually something that's been built up over the centuries and dates back to 
the, the justification that whites gave for enslaving black Africans. That's where race came from in the U.S. today. So there are, other, there, there are these insights that critical theory and critical race theory have. We can talk about them in the Q&A. But, but I want to emphasize that we, sh we can't just reject everything that critical theory says because it does say some true things. Having said that, though, I'd like to next focus on the conflicts between critical theory and Christianity, and they are manifold. So first of all, what's a worldview? I'm going to argue that critical theory functions as a worldview. Well, what is a worldview? A worldview is a lens through which we view all of reality. It answers basic questions like, who are we? What's our fundamental problem as human beings? What is the solution to our problem? What is our primary moral duty? What's our, what's our purpose in life? So our worldview answers all of these big questions. It provides a, a narrative or a meta-narrative that governs our, our entire understanding of everything about who we are and how we interpret all the evidence presented to us. Now, Christianity is one such meta-narrative. Christianity is a meditative from creation to fall to redemption to restoration. So, for example, creation, who are we? Christianity says, you are the creatures of a good and just and loving and holy God. What's our problem? The problem with human beings is that we've rebelled against this good and holy God and we deserve his judgment and wrath. What's the solution to our problem? The solution is not within us. The solution is that God had to send his one and only son, Jesus, to die in our place for our sins, to be raised from the dead, to rescue people who could not rescue themselves. Then the end of history, it ends in restoration. One day, we'll be restored fully to God, and Jesus Christ will return to fix all that was broken in the universe. So that's the story arc of Christianity. Well, critical theory offers an entirely different meta-narrative. Within critical theory, there is no creation element. We're, we're not primarily the creatures of a, of a holy God. In other words, our identity is not primarily vertical. It's actually entirely horizontal. We get our identity as we are members of various groups locked in a battle for social dominance. What's our problem? It's not sin, it's oppression. The problem is that certain groups have seized power and impose their oppressive values on the rest of us. But the solution? It's not from outside, it's from within. The solution is activism, resistance, protest, education, awareness, consciousness raising. We work, we work, we work to overturn unjust and oppressive structures, and that will lead us into a final state of equity, liberation, inclusion, justice, diversity, where power is now reversed and shared among all of these heretofore competing identity groups. So critical theory and Christianity are just different stories, and they answer these basic questions in extremely different ways. What that means is we can't syncretize the two. We can't marry the two. Insofar as we embrace Christianity, we will have to reject the core beliefs of critical theory. And insofar as we embrace critical theory, we'll have to reject the core beliefs of Christianity. We cannot do both. And here's a great example of, of people that are, that are trying to do both. Uh, this is a tweet from Union Seminary. Uh, it, I'll, I won't give the backstory, but they write this. While divinely inspired, we deny that the Bible is inerrant or infallible. It was written by men over centuries and thus reflects both God's truth and human sin and prejudice. We ask, wait a minute, if the Bible is not inerrant or, or infallible, and it's a mixture of truth and sin, how do you tell which is which? How do you sort the truth from the error? 
the reply, they answer, biblical scholarship and critical theory help us discern which messages are God's. So you see that critical theory is now dictating what we can and cannot accept in the Bible. It's sitting in the magisterial role, and the Bible has taken a secondary place and has to be filtered through the lens of critical theory. Now, I commend them for their clarity here, but I think we can see exactly why critical theory, how critical theory is rivaling Christianity in terms of determining uh, the person's worldview. Second, the second big problem with critical theory is its epistemology. That is, how do we know the truth? Now, normally, the traditional view is if someone makes a truth claim about reality, we ask, what is your evidence for the claim? We want them to present a, a reason for us to believe the claim. We want to present logic and arguments in favor of the truth of that claim. Now, C.S. Lewis realized decades ago that there's another approach to truth that he christened bulverism. When you engage in bulverism, you shift the focus from the evidence for a claim to the person's motive for making that claim, right? So what is the hidden agenda they're trying to advance by making that claim? What's their, motive? What's their hidden motivation? What does their psychology or economics or politics tell us about the incentives they have for making that claim? So if, the example he actually uses in a humorous section of Surprised by Joy is he says, when someone says two plus two equals four, the first question to ask is, or the first thing to say is, you only say that because you're a mathematician. You're trying to advance your own identity, your own goals, your own agenda as a mathematician. Saying two plus two equals four gives you power. That's why you're saying it. You don't ask, well, is it true? You say, what's your agenda in making that claim? Now, critical theories epistemology takes a very similar approach to truth. Rather than appealing to objective evidence, which they are skeptical of, right? They, they already think that appeals to evidence and reason are hidden bids for power. They're just veiled attempts for the dominant group to impose and justify their oppression. So they're already skeptical of, the, of this idea of truth claims at all. So instead of looking at the quote-unquote evidence for the claim, which they sort of are skeptical of, they shift the discussion to the person's identity. If the person making that claim comes from a dominant oppressor group, they can argue that they're only making the claim in order to maintain their power and privilege. So, for example, if I'm a man and I say abortion is wrong for the following three reasons, they would say, oh, of course, but you're only saying that because of, to, to, pr 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 to protect your male privilege, to advance your own power, to control women's bodies. But wait a minute here. What if a woman makes the same claim? What if my wife says, abortion is immoral for the following three reasons, the same three reasons. They'll accuse her of internalized oppression. She has so internalized these norms and values of the patriarchy that she's simply parroting them back to us without even realizing it. But here's the problem. Whether someone for either, whether they're from an oppressed group or an oppressor group, their claims can be dismissed either as maintaining privilege or internalized oppression. In no case do they have to appeal to reason, logic, argument, or even to scripture. And that's a big problem because if we say, well, I think the Bible says that you're wrong, or I think here's what the Bible says about this claim, they will say, well, that's your white male interpretation, or that is your heterosexual interpretation of scripture. That is your Western interpretation of scripture. They don't have to appeal to scripture directly, they will simply impugn your motives for making such a claim rather than looking at the evidence itself.
Okay, third, adversarial identities. This is another big problem. Critical theory necessarily divides the world into dominant oppressor groups and subordinate oppressed groups, right? That's sort of central to what critical theory does or contemporary critical theory does. If there were not that sharp division between oppressors and the oppressed, then it would, that would deeply undermine the very foundations of contemporary critical theory. And conversely, if there were some identity marker that unified people across lines of race and class and gender, that would also deeply undermine the central tenets of critical theory. Here's the problem. Christianity offers us not just one, but three fundamental identity markers shared by all human beings. We're all created in the image of God, whether we're young or old, black or white or Hispanic or Asian, male or female. We all are made in God's image and therefore are unified across these other divisions. We are all fallen in sin. We're all rebels against God. We have what Miroslav Volf calls solidarity in sin. I can look at the worst person, the most oppressive person in the world and say, like them, I was born in sin. Like them, I rebelled against God. Like them, I deserve nothing but judgment. But finally, we share redemption in Christ. We all need a savior. We all have that same need. So we're all united in creation, reunited in sin, and reunited in the need for a savior, Jesus Christ. So those doctrines of human solidarity are, are absolutely deadly to racism, to sexism, to classism, and also to critical theory. And for exactly the same reasons, because they teach us human unity and solidarity. We're all, in this fundamental sense, from the same, per, from the same we're all in Adam, we're all, we all are in need of salvation and to be found in Christ. And that deeply undermines the premises on which critical theory rests. And finally, hegemonic power. As we've seen, critical theory problematizes the idea of hegemonic power as oppressive. You know, having this singular set of norms and values and so-called objective and universal claims is seen as oppressive in itself. Well, here's the problem. The Bible is just one gigantic hegemonic discourse from start to finish. The Bible just is one long story justifying God's supreme and complete and good sovereignty over his creation. So there's, according to the Bible, there's one true story of religion. There's one true story of morality. There's one true story of sexuality. There's one true story of gender. In the minds of a critical theorist, that fact is radically oppressive. In fact, you might say that according to critical theorists, uh, God is the oppressor greater than which none can be conceived. Like he's like, ontologically greatest oppression you could possibly conceive because he has certain standards to which he holds every human being regardless of their culture of their gender of their class of their race so that to a critical theorist strikes them as radically oppressive in fact you, when you looked at this list of the social binary one of the things you noticed was christians are always listed at least in our culture as the oppressor group critical theorists will speak very openly about Christian privilege in parallel with white privilege, male privilege, they'll talk about Christian privilege and how we need to dismantle Christian hegemony. The idea that we, our culture has, to some extent, embraced Judeo-Christian values and then justifies them as being objectively true. They would argue that that is actually a way for the ruling class, Christians and to some extent Jews, 
to impose their values on culture, and they would want to dismantle that. Okay, so I hope I've shown you that there are a ton of conflicts between contemporary critical theory and Christianity. They really are competing worldviews, and to the extent you adopt one, you will have to discard the other. Um, Seth and Nerva, do you want me to get into the next section where I talk about some slogans that you hear a lot that are actually rooted in critical theory, but that have severe uh, downstream implications for the church? Or I can just take Q&A now. It's up to you guys. Yeah, I'd say let, let's, uh, let's hit the slogans real quick, and then we'll okay. come back. And, and like we said before, if anybody has any questions, um, go ahead and be typing them into Stephen, and we'll jump on that after this next section. Okay. Uh, sounds good. So let's talk about slogans. So I don't, you know, I don't think that most people, most Christians who are um, influenced by critical theory are, are reading, they're not, they're not out there, or they weren't out there reading D'Angelo. Today they might be because it's a member one bestseller, but in general, they're not out there reading uh, a lot of these theorists. The problem is that contemporary critical theory is just in our culture. It's in the, the air we breathe and the water we drink. So we often absorb the, the ideas of critical theory without realizing it. People, it's very... People will say, well, I can't possibly be influenced by, by critical theory because I've never read any critical theorists. It's like saying, I'm not influenced by, uh, by, by nat- naturalism, by the belief that nature is all that exists, because I've never read any David Hume. Well, but yeah, but if you take an, any science course in a high school or college, you're going to be influenced by, probably by some form of naturalism. That's just the sort of operating uh, worldview of most scientists. Of course, some scientists are Christians, but... In the academy, you're going to encounter full-fledged metaphysical naturalism and the idea that we, we're just immune to that because I haven't read David Hume or I haven't read Richard Dawkins. That's just very naive. So let me give you some slogans that are, whether we know it or not, rooted in critical theory and show that they, can, they, 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 they sound good and they capture some elements of truth. Their logical implications are actually quite inimical to Christianity. So first... How about this claim? We should never challenge lived experience. If you challenge someone's lived experience, you are invalidating their identity. You're you're invalidating their person. You're saying that you're not equally valuable and your testimony is not trustworthy. So we should never challenge lived experience. Now, think about it for a second. Okay, here are some statements. As a woman, I know their society is deeply sexist. As a black man, I know their society is deeply racist. As a lesbian, I know that sexual orientation is fixed from birth. As a Sufi Muslim, I know this Islam is true. As a polyamorous man, I know that sex outside of marriage is okay. As a Hindu, I know that all paths lead to God. Now, you may want to accept some of those claims and reject others. But if you've already claimed that we should never challenge lived experience, which of those claims do you have to accept or do you at least have to not challenge? All of them you have to accept or, fi- or refuse to challenge all those claims because they all appeal to someone's lived experience. But we, don't, we know that's not right. You know, we have, to, we have lived experiences, sure, but we always interpret those experiences and our interpretations can be fallible. So we always have to test our interpretations of our lived experiences against objective reality and against God's revelation to us through either special revelation in scripture or is general revelation in nature. But we, have to, we can't just give a free pass to our lived experiences because they can lead us astray. Second, we need to liberate our theology from privileged groups. 
So you'll hear things like this. We need to decenter white theology and platform the theology of people of color. We need to decenter de Western theology and platform non-Western theology. Well, what else might you hear then? Well, we need to decenter male theology and platform feminist theology. We need to decenter the Eurocentric creeds of the Reformation and platform liberation theology? No, wait a minute. We need to decenter all the, the, the all male books of the Bible and platform extra biblical books written by women. We wouldn't want to have a totally patriarchal scripture, would we? Wait, 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 wait. I, didn't, I didn't sign up for that. Well, that's exactly the point. You know, it's, it, we should certainly be asking ourselves if I'm only getting my theology from a certain set of authors and I'm just inheriting it from my parents, from my pastor, I'm never testing it against scripture, I should question that. It is helpful sometimes to read outside of your tradition and not just your culture, but your, your time and place, right? Read old books, as C.S. Lewis talks about, right? Don't, don't give into the tyranny of the present. So we should do that, and we can sometimes see that we actually have, have misinterpreted the Bible because other people's perspectives are actually accurate and ours are inaccurate interpretations of the Bible. But what we should always be seeking is to interpret the Bible correctly. We should never discard someone's claims simply because of their demographic group. We should not be seeking uh, uh, unprivileged theology. We should be seeking true theology, right? We should not work to divest ourselves from anything that, that comes from privileged groups. We should work on finding a theology that is objectively true because it is taught by Scripture. That's a, that's a key uh, foundation there, a core cornerstone, is that, yes, we can benefit from other perspectives, but at the end of the day, Truth is truth wherever it comes from. Third, we should dismantle all structures which perpetuate privilege. Is that true? Well, let's think about it. Should we dismantle private property because it perpetuates economic privilege? Should we dismantle male eldership because it perpetuates male privilege? Should we dismantle the institution of marriage because it perpetuates heterosexual and monogamous privilege? Should we dismantle the connection between sex and gender because it perpetuates cis-privilege? Should we dismantle all Christian moral norms because it perpetuates Christian privilege? Right? Privilege comes, according to critical theorists, from being part of a dominant group that has imposed its norms on culture. So to dismantle those norms is the only way to get rid of privilege. But we should recognize some of those privileges are actually good things. It is good, for example, that, that children have the privilege of being raised in two-parent homes. They will have an advantage over children who are raised in single-parent homes. But should we then work to destroy the nuclear family in order to destroy privilege? Well, absolutely not, because two-parent homes are a good thing. So we have to be very careful. The right, the right claim would be we should dismantle all unjust structures which perpetuate privilege, but not all structures. We always have to, again, uh, go back to what Scripture says and hold, hold that up as the plumb line for what norms are good and just and what are bad and unjust. And finally, we should promote diversity within the church. Is that true? Depends entirely on what kind of diversity you're talking about. Uh, should we promote a diversity of ethnicities? and cultures. Well, of course, God created different people groups. God created different cultures. You know, we don't care about what kind of food you eat or what clothing you wear or what kind of music you listen to, right? Those, that kind of cultural and ethnic diversity is something that's, that's, that's good or morally, not just morally neutral, but good. 
Uh, the, the kingdom of God is made up of people from all tribes and tongues and nations. There's no one people group that has monopoly on God's truth, right? At Pentecost, God's truth went out to all the people and all the nations of the world, and our job as Christians is to take it to those who've not yet heard. But we can't seek to promote a diversity of, say, moral behaviors within the church or a diversity of theological beliefs within the church. Those kinds of diversities we have to shun because we want to preserve what God says about our behavior and about good and right and true theology. So we can't simply promote diversity wholesale. It's not an intrinsic good. It has to be subject to other considerations like morality, truth, and again, what scripture says. Okay, so that I'll, I will stop there. I, all of those slogans have positives, which is why they're attractive, but then if you push them to their logical conclusion, you find that they are in deep conflict with basic Christian beliefs. So uh, I'll stop there, and we do some Q&A. Yes, sir. So thank you so much for that presentation, Ooh, Neil. So good. Amazing. Um, don't be discouraged if this feels like a lot to you guys. Um, we're going to give you some resources to continue on in this learning process. And it, I know it just can feel like, oh, man, that's completely overwhelming. But Neil has a website. We're going to link that um, with a bunch of book reviews, articles on each one of these things where you can dive a little more in depth. So let's jump right into the question, Stephen. What you got here, bro? Yeah, so the first question we had was from Glenn Meyer. And the question is, some people are saying that you can use critical theory tools through a biblical lens. Mm. For instance, they would say there is no reason in principle that Christians rooted in sound doctrine should not engage in a form of critical theory. Um, so I think, you know, basically the question is, are there things, which you had talked about some of the positives of critical theory, but should we use some of the theories from critical theory even as historical Christians. So I think there's an important distinction there between should we and can we. The question is, if the question is, can we take insights from critical theory and, and use them to discern actual truth, the answer is yes, we can. And for example, I just did. You saw in the talk how I talked about, here's some true insights. And for example, I never thought about, I, mean, I, I thought about it, but I didn't realize that things like um, in, like beauty standards are forms of hegemonic power. They're power wielded by, say, Hollywood. I, I've, I realized that after reading Critical Theorists, right? Now, am I, am I tainted to that? Is that, is, that, is that untrue? No, it's obviously true. Here's another one. I'm reading a, a huge 850 anthology of writings on critical race theory right now. And in those writings, they, they, give you, they show you how race was socially constructed in the U.S. So, for example, how the idea of the white race was sort of tweaked in order to justify slavery, in order to give white people certain rights and privileges and to exclude black people and Hispanics, Mexicans. And they're showing like actual transcripts from court cases where they were arguing about who counts as white. There's a really almost farcical and perverse and tragic trial between two, a married couple they were, the court was trying to figure out whether their marriage was illegal because uh, there were anti-miscegenation laws. You couldn't marry people of different races. So the court was calling people to testify, like, you know, how curly is her hair? Is it too curly? Is she black? Or is it straight enough and she's white? Or is her complexion bright enough? Is it, is it, and they were, this is like a farce, but it's sick. This is a married couple that was being brought up on charges of, like, marrying illegally. And, that, and so... When critical, theory, when critical race theorists point out that whiteness has been very malleable and we've, 
where you've pulled people in and out of those categories to justify segregation, to justify denying people civil rights and voting rights. Well, that's true, right? I'm not going to deny that just because I found that truth in a critical race theory textbook. So when you talk about things like the tools, well, you know, there it's a little trickier. Um, things like intersectionality. Here's, this is actually, you know, this is really funny. I'll give an example from a textbook on intersectionality that I read about, that I read. They gave the example of how a poor single mom on welfare who's homeless, right, is her experience the same as, say, a poor man or a person, a homeless person? or a childless person on welfare, or a, so you see, no, no, all of those four factors will intersect so that her experience is very different. And, and here's an example of how that's useful to Christians. If I have a ministry, say I'm, I'm at a church, and I say to my pastor, hey, I think we need to create a special ministry to unwed single mothers, right? And actually, our, my church has one of those, a, a ministry to unwed single moms. And your pastor says, well, I don't get it. We have a singles ministry. We have a mom's ministry, right? So, so what's, we have all those categories covered. Why do we need another ministry? Can't they go to one of those ministries? And what I said, I said, well, actually, unwed single moms have unique needs that are not going to be as effectively met in either a singles ministry or a mom's ministry, a married mom's ministry, right? So we need a sort of unique ministry to those people in particular. I just applied an intersectional analysis to that question, right? But I think all of you realize the wisdom of what I just did. I'm not wrong. I'm not sort of secretly smuggling Marxism into the church. The, my only point is, is it possible to use these ideas and these tools and these frameworks to, to, uh, to think through reality? The answer is, yes, it is. Now, should you do that? Here's where it gets tricky because these ideas are also, as I've shown you, pernicious. They're also part of a deeply dangerous worldview. And so I would, I would not tell people, you know what, go, go out and just read a bunch of Robin D'Angelo and just weed out the bad stuff. And here's the, a good analogy. Imagine I have a handful of 99 uh, tablets of cyanide and one Skittle. Am I going to hand my kids that, hand, that handful of 99 poisons and one Skittle and say, guys, there's a Skittle in there. Knock yourself out. That's madness, right? There's so much poison in there. Is it really worth extracting the Skittle now? What I, should, I, should I say there are no Skittles at all in there? No, that would be a lie. But the Skittles are mingled with so much that's dangerous and false, I'd be very unwise to just throw open the floodgates and say, just knock yourselves out, guys. So I, I appreciate, so for example, the, this probably is in reference to Resolution 9 in the SBC, where they said things like, Christians have used the selected insights from critical race theory and intersectionality to give, gain insight into social realities. That's a true statement. Christians, I've done that personally, right? I didn't know about anti-miscegenation laws before I started reading these books. But that said, is it wise to recommend that Christians should do that? No. And again, Resolution 9 did not actually recommend that we should go and use those things, only that it's, it's possible to use them that way. So it's a very, it's, we have to thread the needle here. Uh, and I appreciate people who are saying, you know, it's so dangerous. It's not worth commending in any sense. I understand that argument. I just want to be precise because if you show that you are naive about what critical theory is, what critical race theory is, then people will hammer you. They'll say, you don't know what you're talking about. There's lots of true insights here. 
here's another example. Critical race theorists, one of the primary uh, things they say is that race is a social construct, that we are all actually, you know, there's, there's no subspecies of human beings. There were all one species. Well, Christians should say, amen. There's, well, I've heard so many Christians say, there's one race, the human race. That is exactly right. Acts 17, we're all one blood. That truth is, a, is a, one of the primary truths affirmed by critical race theory. If you say, I deny everything critical race theory teaches, well, are you going to deny that? Because that's true. So we should just be careful about not issuing these blanket statements about how it's all false. Because again, that helps you understand why these ideas are attractive. If you don't understand the truths of these, uh, these worldviews, the truths contained in them, you won't understand why people accept them. They accept them precisely because they contain these nuggets of truth that mask or disguise the overall badness and, and, and wrongness of the worldview. So that's a long answer. Yeah. So we're getting a bunch of questions in. So here's the next one. This one's from Jared Cossey. Mm-hmm. Is it possible to agree that systemic racism exists today while also rejecting CRT entirely? Or does believing systemic racism exists require you to hold to some aspects of CRT? That when someone says, uh, I believe in systemic racism, or when someone says, I reject systemic racism, when they say either of those things, the first question to ask is, what do you mean by systemic racism? Because that term, and I, yeah, that term is incredibly nebulous, okay? Ask them for a clear definition. And what often helps is to suggest one, because this is what I think people usually mean by that. Say, are you saying, when you say systemic racism, do you mean systems which perpetuate racial disparities? Is that what you mean? Like, independent of the actor. So you could have non-racist people who don't hate blacks or hate Asians or hate white people, non-racist people in these systems, and yet the systems themselves perpetuate racial disparities. So do you mean systems which perpetuate racial disparities? If they say yes, then do you believe that that thing exists? I would say, well, of course. There, there are so many systems which perpetuate racial disparities. There are tons of them. They say, well, good, so you believe in systemic racism. I say, well, well, hold on there. I'll give you an example of some systems which do that. Marriage. Marriage perpetuates racial disparities. Well, how? Well, whites tend to marry whites, just on average, and blacks tend to marry blacks, on average. But the wealth gap between whites and blacks is like a factor of 13 times. The median white household has 13 times the wealth, not the income, the wealth, of the median black household. You can look it up. It's, it's very, very fluctuated a little bit, but it's a huge gap. So when you get intra-racial marriage a lot, which you do, um, then you end up perpetuating that wealth gap. And there are actually papers I can give you that talk about how, yeah, marriage perpetuates racial disparities. But wait a minute. Do we want to really say that marriage is a manifestation of systemic racism? That sounds crazy. We don't want to dismantle marriage. It's actually a really good and just thing. Well, what about homeschooling or private schooling? Or what about private property, right? All, there are all these systems which do indeed perpetuate systemic with race, uh, racial disparities, but clearly we wouldn't want to say that private property itself is a manifestation of systemic racism, right? So uh, now there, there are other definitions 
But I think that what most people think about when they think about systemic racism is they say if there are disparities that are perpetuated, that is systemic racism. But I just want to point out that that definition, while it would show that there are lots of examples of systemic racism, but a lot of these examples are actually good systems that we would not want to dismantle. So, and now, the, and, and I actually asked my collaborator, Dr. Patrick Sawyer, who is, you know, has read much more of the literature than I have even. And he says, yes, actually, that's exactly, the, the real problem is that term is so nebulous, even within academia, that it's very hard to pin people down. What do you mean exactly? And, and actually, there are some critical theorists who would actually say, yes, marriage is a form of, or is just tainted by racism, and we should dismantle it because it is a white Western male construct and we need to dismantle it to get rid of that disparity. So my point is they're actually being consistent here. So we should be very careful as Christians as to what exactly we're affirming. Now, let me back up one second now. Now, can you define systemic racism in other ways? Yes, you can. And as Christians, should we realize that racism can infect laws and systems and policies Yes, we should. For example, you want an example of systemic racism? Jim Crow. Going back farther, uh, uh, chattel slavery. Actually, here's an interesting one. It's not just laws. What about redlining? So redlining was a practice, uh, thing, thing done as a policy. It was not law, but it was enacted by uh, realtors where they would select certain mostly black regions in cities to not qualify for loans. So as a result, you got incredible poverty there because no one would give them loans. And you, that's why you look at maps, even today, you can see certain impoverished neighborhoods, and they're impoverished in part because they were redlined, right? And this is like in the 80s and 90s, I think it was outlined in the 90s, I believe, I'm not sure about that. But the point is, that was systemic racism, but it was happening not through national policy or national law, it's happening through local companies and local realtors, their own policy, right? So the point is, is it possible for people to, to enact certain policies that either, either intentionally or unintentionally harm blacks and minorities? Yes, it is. We shouldn't deny that. I'm just saying be careful how you define these terms. Just ask for a definition and then also make sure that you don't equate disparity with injustice. Not all disparities are injustices. And then the silly example is the NBA, right? The NBA is like, what, 75% black? But that is clearly not because of racism. It's because black players are the best at basketball, right? On average, of course. I mean, the, 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 but the point is, that just shows you that you can't draw a one-to-one correlation between disparity and injustice. But in fact, actually, Ibram X. Kendi, in his book, Stamped from the Beginning, he actually says that if you're an anti-racist, that means you believe in the equality of races, that means that you'll realize that, that all racial disparities, both nationally and globally, are the result of racial discrimination. But uh, think about that. That is just, that is not, that's in page 11 of his book, Stamped from the Beginning. That is not remotely true. There are some disparities, like the NBA, which are not the result of discrimination. So, and there are, and there are others that we should always ask ourselves, if I see a disparity, it could be injustice. Absolutely. But there could be other factors, and there could be a mix of factors. It could be part injustice and part other things like interest, right? Like, I think probably more black kids grow up playing basketball 
they're more interested. It's not injustice that they're in the NBA then. So my only point is be very careful to define terms and then realize that, that injustice and disparities are not the same thing. So another question we got, and forgive me for butchering this name probably, but also William, uh, I believe she asked, isn't it true that knowledge can be derived from lived experiences and not reason alone? The supposition that only one form of knowledge is valid has led Western philosophers to dismiss other culture groups and question if they had philosophy because they did not practice philosophy in accordance to Western norms. So I think this is just talking about, you know, can lived experiences be another source of truth? Yes, yeah, so this is actually pretty much exactly what contemporary critical theorists say, is that this idea of logic and reason are actually Western constructs and, and that are functions of either the, well, they'll say the Enlightenment, it's not true at all, but whatever. They'll say that the Enlightenment brought these Western values into global circulation, but that there are other, they call it ways of knowing. There are other ways of knowing beyond reason and evidence and empirical sciences, and, and they call it positivism. It's not quite what it is, but whatever. Um, and so shouldn't, at, at the very least, lived experience should be another way of knowing. When I would say, well, yeah, I would say that uh, lived experience is indeed a way of knowing. For example, if I said, uh, what do you have for breakfast? I'd say Cheerios. Well, I wouldn't actually. I'd say, I'd say a protein bar. But that would be my, how would I know that? Do I do, I do measurements? Do I ask a scientist? No, it's my lived experience. I, I remember I had a protein bar for breakfast. Uh, so lived experience can be a way to form justified true beliefs, to have knowledge, to acquire knowledge. However, uh, it's not a Western idea that we have to subject our lived experience to reality. That is a biblical idea, right? Because the other ways of knowing, well, it depends on what, you mean, what you're doing with those. So for example, if I say my lived experience tells me that I ate a protein bar for breakfast, well, that's fine, right? If I say my lived experience tells me that you ate a protein bar for breakfast and you lived in Chicago and I don't even know you, I say, wait, 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 <laughs> that's not how your lived experience works. Or if I say, I, you know, I, it was revealed to me in a dream, right? Because some cultures believe that dreams reveal reality. And, and certainly that's, that's true. In fact, in the Bible, you have the prophets and people like Joseph having dreams reveal certain things about reality, God revealing things in dreams. So isn't that another way of knowing? And I would say, well, potentially, but you still subject that, that lived experience, that dream, whatever you have, you subject it to what? Scripture and general revelation, other forms of reality. So for example, if I see a dream, I had a dream that you had a, uh, you know, a Cheerios for breakfast meal. And I say, well, actually I didn't. And I can show you a photo of me eating a protein bar this morning. You can't say, well, my, my indigenous way of knowing is, is better than, is that just, that's just your Western way of knowing. You and your photographs and your, your digital camera, that's a Western construct. He said, no, that's not how the Bible looks at reality. The Bible says we can know things through revelation, scripture, and nature, and that would insist on things like holding up claims to objective evidence. And there is such a thing as objective evidence. Now, we're not purely rational robots. We're not like Spock. We do have biases. We do have um, prejudices about what we consider true and false. And that's, so I'm not denying that we come at all these questions with certain filters on our on our thinking. I agree with that. That's not postmodernism. That's just being sane. Of course, I come at certain questions from a certain perspective. That does not mean that all perspectives are equally valid. Does not mean we can't try to gain actual objectivity because here's the thing, and here's the crucial part. Postmodernism and contemporary critical theory, to, to some extent, are not, they're not, well, I would just say they're not at all, not to an extent, they're not, they're not theistic worldviews. 
to, to postmodernists and the contemporary critical theorists, there is not a God's eye view of reality. Because we would say, well, there's no perfect perspective. We're all, we're all biased. We all have a you know, cloudy vision. We all have blind spots. But guess who doesn't? God. There is an totally unbiased objective knower. God is a totally unbiased objective knower. And so what he knows about reality is what's actually true of reality. So while we, we are not God, we're human beings, but we can aim to, uh, well, I can aim to, we can aim towards God's knowledge. We can aim at objectivity, even if we can't achieve it. It's a big difference in saying all people's knowledges, they actually use the, the word knowledges, that all knowledges are equally valid. That, I would say, no, they're not. because I mean, biblically, there's certainly some knowledges that are totally false. Uh, and so we wouldn't want to claim they're all equally valid because, again, they weren't left with chaos. So what if someone says, yeah, how would we say if someone says, well, my culture group, you know, we, we don't read the Bible at all. Or we, we interpret the Bible in terms of, I, I don't know, music or song. Or we, we don't even bother to read the Bible. We just, we just put it on our shelf and, and touch it and hope that it communicates to us. That's our way of knowing. I mean, I'm not, I'm not making that up, but whatever. I mean, you can imagine, I mean, there are, there are people who, like, the way they read the Bible, they just, like, you know, shake it, and they, it's like a magic eight ball. They open it up, there's a verse, I'll do this today. And we would say, that's not a way of knowing. That's, that's just terrible exegesis. That's a terrible way to read the Bible. You, you read the Bible by asking, what does God say through the author's intent? What is their historical context? We learn the original languages we can. We, we do good research. That's not a way of an equally valid way of knowing as the person who just you know, puts the Bible on their head as a hat and hopes that it sinks in. That's not a way of knowing. That's, that's a bad practice. So I just want to say we shouldn't be, let's not be arrogant and say that, you know, my Western truth is the only, of my Western claims, my claims are true necessarily because I'm Western and I'm educated and I read the Bible the right way. But we should actually still say there's an objective truth in the Bible, which is God's truth, which God knows. And we want to read the Bible by, uh, as objectively as we can and discard wrong ways to read the Bible. And, and, we can, and, 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 if you, and if you deny that, what are you left with? You're left with sort of this complete subjectivity when it comes to interpretation, complete. We're left with what well, everyone's interpretation is their own. It's their own way of knowing the Bible, their own way of knowing scripture. They're all equally valid. I would say they're clearly not because some theological truths are actually true and others are false. So, sorry, long answer. All right, well, we're going to try to get to a bunch. There's a bunch of questions coming in. So I'm going to combine these two. Okay. Masno Wilson asked, how should believers react to racism? Mm-hmm. How can we as Christians teach unity from a biblical standpoint? And with that, Joseph Wise asked, should we use the mantra Black Lives Matter since it is true, even though it is linked to the Black Lives Matter organization. So how do we react to racism from a biblical standpoint, and should we use Black Lives Matter? I'll do the, first, the second one first because it's fast. Um, everyone should affirm the sentiment Black Lives Matter, right? I mean, who, who, have I seen any Christian out there being like, no, no, Black Lives do not matter? I mean, really, who is saying that? I don't think anyone's saying that. So if someone's like, do you believe Black Lives Matter? like, yes. Uh, it's an, an, you know, it's, so certainly we should affirm that sentiment. Um, what about the hashtag? What about the organization? The hashtag is trickier because the organization, if you look at their statement of beliefs, they are just totally un, non-Christian. They, are, they, are, they, were, they were founded as an organization. They created the hashtag and then founded the organization, but they're explicitly against 
things that Christians ought to be for. They're explicitly pro-abortion, they're explicitly pro-LGBTQ affirming, and then and from the very founding of the organization by, I think it's two, uh, I think it's two black lesbian women, and, and I'm not sure about all, all three of them, but, but from the inception, they were pro-LGBTQ affirming, um, and they are, uh, what was the last one? Oh, and they actually say on their uh, statement of beliefs, I believe that they want to essentially undermine the nuclear family. It's on their statement of beliefs. So I'm like, you can't, you cannot as a Christian affirm that organization. What about using the hashtag? I would say I, I would not do it. Not because, because you might, here's the thing. It, you're trying to affirm the sentiment, but not the organization. But how many Twitter users are going to make that subtle distinction in your hashtagging? None, right? They're not going to know. So, but here's the thing. Why not use like a slightly different phrase just to show that you affirm the sentiment and not the hashtag like, or the organization? Like all black lives matter or, or like I care about black lives or black lives are made in the Imago Dei, long hashtag. But the point is just tweak it. I think all black lives matter is a hashtag that's been going around. I don't, is that true? It's nervous nodding. But it's, it's different enough that they're like, huh. <laughs> you know, they, they seem to be maybe not affirming the organization but they're trying to affirm the sentiment. So personally, I think if I want to say black human beings are made in God's image and equally worthy of value and dignity in God's eyes, I would just tweet that. I don't need a hashtag. In fact, I'll shout it from the rooftops. So I would just say, personally, I would recommend using the hashtag. If you got to do it, I don't know. Is it, if you're, you know, you're, just, you're just dying to use the hashtag, I guess, but I wouldn't do it. Um, but why not just, you know, rather than being like a hashtag slacktivist, why not start tweeting things like, Black lives matter to God. In fact, why not say this as a gospel witness? You know why I believe black lives matter? Sorry. Do you know why I believe black lives matter? Because I believe we are made in the image of a good God. And that is why I believe that. Don't just tweet a stupid hashtag. Tell them why. Tell them the gospel. Tell them Jesus died to redeem black lives. So tell them more than just a hashtag. Um, how do we address racism? If you look at my full talk, I have a whole section, not just on racism exists, and it does exist today, and how prevalent it is in the church. And I'll give you one stat. Good surveys, good surveys have found that within self-proclaimed evangelicals who attend church regularly, about 20% of us would be opposed to interracial marriage, one in five. It's actually, it's actually a higher percentage than the secular culture, okay? So those are, those are not just self-proclaimed evangelicals. Those are church-attending self-proclaimed evangelicals. 20% would not approve of interracial marriage. And it's going down. So approval is going up and disapproval is going down. And that was like, I think, from 2008. And so you could argue that today it's lower. But, but still, it's, you know, I, I don't think I know a single evangelical. I know one evangelical who'd be hesitant to affirm interracial marriage, and he's not white. So my only point is that my lived experience is that evangelicals are lovely, caring, compassionate people. People in my churches that I've been in, conservative congregations, would, are, are incredibly generous, compassionate, loving people. But if I have to go with my lived experience or the data, I'm going to go with the data because I'm a scientist. Uh, and so I'm not going to say that, well, the data is wrong. No, the data says what it says. So I have to recognize that, yes, racism is a problem today in the church. Um, and how can we address it? Uh, that's a whole talk. Uh, I'm going to recommend one book, Dr. George Yancey's book, Beyond Racial Gridlock. Dr. George Yancey's Beyond Racial Gridlock. 
a uh, very good book about how to have better dialogue. It's all about that we have to have a model built on a recognition of our mutual sinfulness. Ooh, it sounds, it doesn't sound very positive and encouraging, but it's true, right? Uh, if we come into the conversation saying, I am a sinner, I am not here to dictate to you how you ought to do this and that because I'm right. I'm coming as a sinner who has been forgiven, and so are you. We're going to sit down as brothers in Christ and talk about this. And the, his model is involved active listening. So they talk to you, and you listen, and then you repeat back to them what they said in your own words so that they know you heard them. Then it's your turn. Then you talk to them, they listen, and they repeat back to you what you just said. That's the model for how we have dialogue. It's actually dialogue. It's not monologue. It's not me talking down to you and giving you a list of ultimatums. It's actually me and you learning as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I would add add in front of an open Bible. You know, what does God say about these issues? And and can we talk about them? Uh, And and it's not a magic bullet, but it's a way to think about how we even have hard conversations without getting angry and bitter and dividing the church. and that's, the, that's my main worry about books like Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility. That book is poison. It will tear the church apart um, because it says things like, and I, I, I'll have to pull the, I have the review online, but um, she actually says she believes that all whites are, 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 have a racist worldview and deep racist pattern. Basically, all whites are racist. And she even says things like this. Racism cannot be absent from interracial friendships, period. She's very emphatic. Every, even interracial friendships are tainted by racism, period. She says things like this. The question is not, was this action racist? That's not the question. But rather, how did racism manifest in this situation? Now think about that. Think about what that would do if you were a person of color and you actually embrace that ideology that every white friend you have is trying to assert their dominance over you. And every action they commit, it's not, was that racist? It was racist, but how was it racist? It's the only question. How was it racist this time? What will you do to the church? Can you have, I mean, I see some of you guys are, you know, interracial marriages here. How's that going to go along with your spouse, right? If every single, single thing that he or she does, you're looking at her like, you're trying to get power over me, right? That's going to destroy, I mean, and I, you, you know, yes, you guys laughing and hugging I had a black pastor email me um, a few days ago that messaged me and he's like, man, and he's a black pastor. He's like, I know about racism. I know about it. Right. But I'm trying to pastor a, con- a congregation that is just being torn apart right now by critical race theory. He said, I have four couples on the verge of separating over critical race theory. Right. Not leaving the church, separating as couple, as married couples over this issue. He's like, so man, this is not, people are like, well, this is just abstract philosophy. I'm like, no, man. Bad ideas have victims, and you embrace these bad ideas, you're going to tear the church limb from limb and separate families and friendships, and it's happening. So don't tell me this is all abstract theology for eggheads, and there's nothing more practical than good theology. So uh, if you see what, don't, I seem never clap. That's right. Let me, let me get a, <laughs> all right. So all I'm saying is, uh, it is, so yes, we, we should find a good biblical model for, for dealing with racism. Absolutely. I'm not denying it's a problem. I'm not saying we should ignore it. Um, that's right. So George Yancey's book is good. But, I'll, but even more than saying George Yancey's book is good, I will say there are other books that are really bad. And so don't feel like, well, I, I, I can't find a good book, but 
a good, a, a bad book's better than no book. I'm like, wrong. <laughs> a bad book is worse than nothing at all. Uh, I'd rather you have a good book and good ideas, but there are ideas that are actual poison. And, that, and, and so you saw it was the number one bestseller on Amazon right now. And I've seen conservative evangelicals recommending that book. And I just want to pull my hair out because that is a really bad idea. So uh, maybe this could be a quick one. Uh, Becca is asking, some critical theorists say that only white people can technically be considered racist since they're part of the hegemony. My inclination is to disagree with this redefinition. However, what exactly is at stake if society accepts this redefinition that only white people can be racist? This is a great question. So yeah, critical race theory will definitely, in general, there are two exceptions like Kendi, but generally um, critical race theorists will define racism as prejudice plus power, meaning prejudice plus hegemonic power. So by that definition, while people of color can be prejudiced, they can't be racist because only, you can only be racist if your group has hegemonic power. So let's say people of color can be prejudiced but not racist. And, it, but, and that's a definition. They're saying by definition. Um, and I actually had a great conversation a few weeks ago with, with two black pastors and a black woman. And I, I talked about how you know, the traditional definition in the dictionary is like racism is just racial prejudice. So you know, a black person can be racially prejudiced, a white person, a Hispanic person, an Asian person can be racially prejudiced. Anyone can be racially prejudiced. But this other definition, which is found in critical race theory, says that only whites can be racist. Other people can be prejudiced, but not racist. But and they, they kind of, I explained the problems. And I said, look, here's the thing. You shouldn't redefine words that way because racism is fundamentally a sin, and sin is fundamentally an offense against a holy God. So it's primar- sin is always primar- primarily vertical and then later horizontal. Like David said, against you, you only have I sinned when he committed murder and adultery. Right? That's a pretty horizontal sin, and yet he said, you know, in your sight have I sinned, ultimately. And so if we understand that, now you see, well, sin is not about what identity group I belong to. It's about my heart before a holy God. And that evil heart can, be, can, be, can belong to a black person, a white person, or a purple person. So we should resist the, definition, the redefinition of racism because it obscures this nature as a sin. And in fact, some critical racists will actually go that, go, will actually believe that and will say, racism is beyond good and evil. It's just a thing that exists like gravity. It's a structure, right? So they, they will actually remove it from the moral realm because it fits with their definition. I would say, no, no, no. Christians understand racism primarily as sin because it's demeaning someone's value, the value of a human being made in God's image. Okay, so, uh, and then I, the example, imagine I, I said, imagine I said, I'm going to redefine adultery. Adultery is, is, is uh, marital infidelity plus power. So men can commit adultery, but when women, women can just be, they can just be, they can just cheat. So you have, you have adulterers, male adulterers, and you have women who cheat. So wait, 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 wait. You're obscuring the symmetry that exists between men and women. Men and women are equally moral agents. Men and women are equally depraved. Men and women can equally sin. Therefore, we don't use different words to describe your sin versus my sin. We say there's sin and it's called adultery. In the same way, there's a sin called racism and anyone can commit it. But now, I had that, that little spiel there. And, uh, one of the black pastors said, man, look, I, I'm a simple man. I run a, in a simple church. And I understand all this you know, highfalutin, abstract argumentation, whatever you're saying. I, I understand that. But how do I talk to one of my parishioners, my congregants, who's a black man, and he asks, he's like, you know, I, there's a family across the field. He lives in a very poor area in Alabama. He's like, the family across the field, the white family, why do they hate me? Yeah, they don't even know me. Why do they hate me just because I'm black? And, and so how does that, how does that, you're, you know, you have these definitions, these arguments, this philosophy. 
how does that affect how I minister to this man trying to understand racism? And I say, that's a great question. Here's my answer. If you adopt that structural definition of racism as prejudice plus power, how do you answer his question, why do they hate me? You'd say, well, it's either these systems of power that have, that have justified a white racial dominance. And so he hates you because he's part of that system. And we have to work to dismantle that system of power and privilege, right? That's what you say if you adopt that second definition. It's, racism is about a structural institutional power. But if you adopt the traditional definition, that I'd say the biblical understanding of racism, you say, brother, he hates you because of sin. He hates you because he has a wicked heart. And he needs the power of the gospel to transform his wicked heart. So you need to be praying for him that God would, would transform his heart and he would realize that you are made in God's image. And don't forget, even though he is sinning against you in a grievous way, that same wicked heart lives in you. So you cannot despise him. You cannot get bitter. You cannot say, I'm going to withhold forgiveness from him because you have that same evil heart. And you may not be prejudiced like he is or racist like he is, but you have other sins that are equally offensive to God. So you come before him not as a Pharisee saying, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like other men. In fact, I can't be racist by definition because I'm black. You don't say that. You say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you show, you extend grace and forgiveness to him if he repents. And you pray for his salvation, his forgiveness. Right? So that man, and he was like, he was like, you know, he, that got some amens because they realized that is practical theology. That is how taking a wrong turn theologically and philosophically based on sociology can lead you to a wrong place. And actually it undermines your ability to preach the gospel, both to other people and to yourself. So that's just an important way that we think, we think that theology is not practical. We think these are all academic discussions. You know, these are, this is armchair speculation. I'm saying you have, it is really practical and it will affect how you view basic questions like sin and repentance in the gospel. That's good. I want to get to this question. This was Kevin Richelieu asking, how do we not use critical theory to justify not having compassion and empathy towards those who lost loved ones to police brutalities? So I think he's asking, how can we still have empathy for those who are suffering because of police brutality, but not fall into critical theory? Yeah, I would just say that like that is not, I mean, so I think the problem is that people, I don't know exactly why, but they lump all kinds of things into critical theory. Like, oh, you, you love the poor critical theory. Like, you know, you, you care for the vulnerable critical theory. You want to agree with people that are weeping because they lost a loved one? Critical theory. I'm like, that's just kind of scripture, right? I mean, I, I'm not saying that, that people who've embraced critical theory, they will misinterpret scripture. I understand that. That's not a reason for you to do it too. Like, you know, like, well, I'll do it. I'll, I'll also twist scripture. No, you, the Bible says things like, obviously care for the poor, you know, protect the vulnerable, weep with those who weep. I mean, you know, so I, I don't think, unfortunately, I think there is this reaction against critical theory or cultural Marxism, whatever you want to call it. The re- reaction against that, that then we end up just ignoring just the Bible's teaching. But actually, I think it's helpful here, and C.S. Lewis pointed this out, if you're reading old books, you, you know, they, you can't accuse, I mean, here's an example, right? You know, critical theory was developed in, you know, the in 1930s or 40s or something. Uh, so, you know, go read some pastors that were writing before that. Go read Charles Spurgeon. Right? You can't accuse Charles Spurgeon of being a cultural Marxist or a critical theory or anything. You know, when, when he's telling you things like, you know, slavery is bad, care for the poor, you, you, you can't attribute that to, and obviously I'm a big fan of Spurgeon, but the point is, 
you can't attribute that to like some contemporary cultural thing. He's not speaking as a Republican or a Democrat. He's speaking as an expositor of scripture. So giving you some kind of, so historical distance can actually help you realize what is a product of your culture. And so, you know, go read the old theologians and old preachers because they'll give you, that you can't impute to them these modern motives. That's a good way to like separate out what is and is not a function of our culture. And feel free to, by anyone, if you are in this chat and you want more information or have other questions, feel free to email me. Um, uh, uh, you know, actually, my, my email is on my website under bio, but I'm also on Twitter and Facebook. Twitter is a good place to reach me. I'm Neil Shenvi, at Neil Shenvi, N-E-I-L-S-H-E-N-V-I. My DMs are open, and I get a lot of messages these days. So it may take me like a week to get to you, but I will answer. So Neil Shenvi. Wow. Man. Well, thank you so Jeez much, Neil. Louise. And great questions from the audience, man. You guys yeah, good questions. Ama amazing. Um, I know we had a ton more. So what maybe I won't put Neil on the spot, but we're going to do this, like I said, multi-week series. Maybe we'll have Neil come back and answer some more of these questions. Um, but a lot of his stuff, I think you, a lot of his answers that he would give would be found on his website. That's been a great resource for us. We're also going to put out, we did a, we did a, an episode, free mind episode with Neil a couple months ago on critical race theory, hmm. um, specifically that we're going to put out this week. So you can look for that on Wednesday. And like I said, next, we'll, we'll put what we just taped here. Um, we recorded here on zoom. We'll put that on our YouTube channel tomorrow, free mind. So you can see the slides and all that. If you want to take another look at that, that was really helpful. I think the visual elements really helped. So, and like I said, next week, same time, we're going to have uh, Sammy say to, to dive deeper into the issues of systemic racism. And so hopefully you guys can uh, pop back in uh, next time. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you guys. We hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Neil Shenvey and the many questions that came after his presentation. We actually have more questions that he answered in our bonus episode. Neil answers the questions about the repentant services that some churches are doing, the reconciliation style lamenting services, and he answers what we should do if we see critical theory on display in our churches with leaders and pastors. To access those questions and answers, we encourage you to check out our bonus episodes. Go to freemind.fm and click support the show, or you can click the link in the show notes of the podcast you're listening to right now. Go to the show notes and click support the show. Sign up is just a couple clicks away, and you get access to the bonus episodes with Neil Shenvey and the many other bonus episodes with many of our guests that have been posted since the beginning. We'd like to interact with you on social media at FreeMindFM on Twitter and Instagram and FreeMindPodcastFM on Facebook. And if you haven't yet, we'd appreciate a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts so that we can be discovered by more people searching for this kind of content. Thanks so much for joining us this week. We'll catch you next time.